Welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jasmine, and today the NRL Grand Final follows the AFL in delivering a significantly lower TV audience. Uh, while we have another potential streaming player entering the market, as well as Australian advertising companies getting their shot at making art as part of this year's Rig Design Prize. Joining me to discuss all of these topics today is acting managing editor Andrew Banks. It's just us today, Banksy. How are you going, mate? Very wet today, Cal. How are you? Yeah, very wet and sodden. It's um, another lovely day up here in North Sydney. Yeah, we're turning it on for you again. After we've then talked about that news, Banksy, um, you'll then be hearing from the brand new Cummins & Partners CEO, Michael McConville, who I caught up with in St Kilda this week after he recently returned from nine years in the UK. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing that, Cal. How was it? Yeah, it was great. Um, Obviously, always nice to do these interviews in person, which are very slowly coming back uh, into fashion. Let's crack into our first topic, Banksy some news over the weekend that Seven is potentially in the driving seat to secure the valuable NBC Universal package of content, which could see it partner up with NBC to launch the streaming service Peacock here in Australia. Seven's long been touted for a matchup with a a streaming partner, where that would come from has sort of been, you know, the, the, the main remaining question there with both of its main competitors locally, Nine and Ten, obviously having their own partners in Stan and Paramount Plus now. Banksy, another um, streaming service here. Can we fit it in? And uh, I, I guess could this be a play to detract from their rivals? I actually think this is really an interesting proposition for Seven. I mean, we are going to talk about AFL and NRL a bit later, but the move that they did to secure the AFL rights, I mean, this is really now playing into Seven's hands of finally securing something. I mean, it's been a very long five years between Presto for a streaming service for them. Um, So it'll be really interesting to see if they can secure something with NBCU's streaming platform. Uh, Peacock, great name for it. I think, you know, it's time for them to show their colours and get out there and mix it amongst the... uh, Amongst, amongst the other players in Australia, I, I think there's room. I think there's um, a plenty of opportunity. I mean, the money's there. Uh, there's much to be had. I think Peacock is doing really, really well in America. I, I read today 15 million paid subscribers in Q3. Um, they did have a operating loss of 1.7 billion in 2021, and they expect that to grow to 2.5 billion this year, um, their Q3 earnings are out in October 27. So it will be good to see where they're at um, with regards to their financials. But they're backed by NBC Universal. Um, they own 33% of Hulu. And um, it, it, they are, from what I can gather, interested in, in getting all of that slate. And Disney Plus own the rest. And it looks like they're not keen to, to off, offload that. Yeah, I think... Um you know, the conversation with the overcrowding of the streaming uh, the streaming market in Australia has kind of, you know, you, you hear repeatedly from the big players in market that you need constant headline shows to be able to market and draw your subscribers in. You know, we're seeing that right now with um, binges, uh, binges HBO Influx, which, mm. um, you know, we were talking about just before um, and, you know, we've said just, 
multiple times now, you know, that that, that is potentially looking like that contract's going to end at the end of next year. This um this current deal, uh, some of NBC Universal's content is, you know, available on multiple of the current players in the in the the market right now, including Stan and then Netflix as well. You know, you've got shows like The Office, Law and Order, um, Brooklyn Nine Nine, Parks and Rec, and then some of the UK productions as well. Um, it will be interesting, I think, to very much see where there is room to fit in there. Um, looking at a table which was um, referenced in the AFR article, we have Netflix as the dominant player in the market with 6.3 million active paying subscribers, some distance ahead of Amazon Prime on 4.1, Disney on 3, Stan on uh, there and about 2.5 million and then binge and Paramount a little bit further behind on 1.3 and 1.1 million. Yeah, but don't forget, Cal, I mean, you're looking at a situation where you've got these players there. They all share a lot of the similar programs. So you will see a reshuffle, I think, if someone's interested in something and then that goes to, say, a new streaming service called Peacock, then if it, if it is the draw card, then people will flock, I mean, pardon the pun, oh, to Peacock. Um, rather than stick with, say, uh, uh, the other streamer that, that is losing that 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 program. Yeah, and uh, again, something we've discussed several times now is, is when, when it does start to hit the pockets of Australians, especially during a cost of living uh, crisis, which we're, we're sort of seeing at the moment, you can very much clearly see um, based on those numbers there, you know, Netflix is probably the one that everyone has or there and abouts. Um and, you know, with the introduction of the ad services to Netflix and Disney, which are imminent, um, we will probably see some sort of drop off there. Um, also, um, interesting that there were t- there is sort of talk as well of Peacock coming here and and being an outright player as opposed to s- siding with one of the networks. I mean, Seven's obviously the best perfect fit at this point, considering how everyone else is paired off. But uh, there's issues with the, the startup costs for Peacock to do that, um, and if they kind of use lean on Seven for the free to air component of what they're doing, it seems like a pretty good fit um, commercially for them. We do have Paramount's up front tomorrow. Um, there's been talk of an announcement around Pluto, so another player in the uh, I guess streaming business or market thereabouts. For now, though, moving on to our next topic in a result that um, no one in Victoria knew about, the Penrith Panthers thrashed the Parramatta Eels in the Battle of West Sydney on Sunday in the NRL Grand Final. The ratings once again showed a lesser interest in this year's final um, with 2.756 million viewers nationally and 1.61 million viewers in the metro markets there were 389,000 viewers on Nine Now, the biggest number to watch an NRL grand final via streaming, although um, you would kind of caveat that with the fact that um, BVOD numbers are increasing year on year, so it would be um, more or less a monumental fail if those numbers were down on any previous year. Um, this was, as I mentioned, down on last year's final between, again, the Penrith Panthers and last year's South Sydney Rabbitohs. Uh, and... This followed on from last week, which saw a pretty big decline in viewers watching the AFL Grand Final back when it returned to its 2.30 afternoon time slot. 
Banksy, we're coming off a very recent mega broadcast deal between Seven Foxtel and the AFL. And just after then, the NRL came out and sort of hinted that it wanted to squeeze a bit more money out of its broadcasting partners. But after two weekends of disappointing ratings, how, how are those deals kind of being viewed now and what's the sort of value exchange on them looking like? Uh, look, I, I think let's just preface this. I spoke to Chris Walton from Nun Media earlier today about this and, and talking about the ratings and he said that it is quite misleading the, the figures and, I, and I, I guess a lot of people in the industry would would agree I think I'm 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 along the same lines as well the the sheer number of ways that we can view overnight um, Oztam figures that you know people going to pubs to watch it with their mates uh, you know even Chris said you know he knows lots of people that are already made plans to to go and how they were going to go and watch the grand final they're not factored into any of these numbers that we get overnight. So really I think when you look at those numbers, obviously things are going to change with with what we've had with the pandemic and things like that. I, I think we really need to kind of look to those numbers as being one indication uh, but not the full picture of, of where people were watching those grand finals. Uh, I think from an AFL-NRL point of view, uh, the AFL is a totally different beast. It's it's essentially a lot longer. There's there's more opportunities to slot ads in. Uh, unlike the NRL, there's more scoring opportunities. Um, it's it's just a different value proposition. I think ultimately, Seven really needed that that deal, and I think that they they were they put the money there, and they they were able to to seal that and and get some continuity. I guess is really important for them now. They can bed that in. They can they can kind of plan now for the future. And I think from an NRL perspective, you know, they're going to be in a position where they need to um, argue their case. But but I guess what's not going for them as much as the things I've just spoken about are things such as the fact that it it is uh, uh, there's fewer in the market uh, as opposed to. Um, what's available for them. Uh, it is classed as a more of an Eastern seaboard sport than a national sport. Um, and I guess it's probably a, more of a risky venture, I guess, for, for, um, from an investment point of view, as opposed to the AFL, which was almost like a between the sticks. <laughs> there are, the reality is, as you say, there's only two of these, uh, tier one winter codes up for grabs. Um, so sort of just having one as a make or break, whether or not you're, I guess, well, I say make or break, whether or not seven are breaking even on that deal is, an, is another conversation. But um, certainly, again, to preface what is coming later this week, it'll be interesting to see how 10 responds and, and Paramount responds to missing out on that one. But, um, yeah, I think no one's going to be arguing that seven – is unhappy with the fact that it's locked in the AFL for, you know, the next nine years or so. No, and I think NRL will get a good deal with, with the offering that they have. I think that it is it is um, a very important sport in Australia, uh, you know, and I think that they just obviously will look to the AFL result and, and, and rightly so expect that they can do better than they've done previously. Uh, but it is quite relative to to the code itself and and the limitations of that in comparison. So as long as you keep those things in mind, 
um, I think that they'll end up getting getting a, a, a good result. Coming up next, uh, we're going to talk quickly about the Rig Design Prize for 2022 and looking forward to 10 and Paramount's upfronts. The first major exhibition of advertising and communication design in the National Gallery of Victoria's history sees the Rig Design Prize for 2022. It showcases eight Australian-based agencies looking at the capacity of advertising and communications in order to design and influence how we consume, act and behave as a society. Uh, this included the offices of Clemenger BBDO Melbourne, DDB Group Melbourne, Frost Collective, Gilimba, Leo Burnett Australia, TBWA Melbourne, the Royals and Thinkabell all uh, displaying work at the Ian Potter Centre at the NGV in Fed Square, which I was actually lucky enough to get an early sneak peek at yesterday, Banksy. Yeah, what was that like? Tell us about it. Well, I, you know, we're, we're not going to delve too deep into this because we you can read about it on the site later this week on Friday, but um, it was really interesting to kind of walk walk through the space and sort of see how eight different advertising agencies have sort of brought to life one unified pitch Um especially as something, you know, I kind of go to award shows and there's always the discussion over effectiveness of an ad campaign and whether or not, you know, the, the, the brief has been addressed in a way that is most effective for that client. But this was really an opportunity for those agencies to sort of flip it on its head and I guess turn their advertising into art in a way that, you know, um, it kind of embodies how that agency sees creativity. So mm. would recommend that anyone who is passing through Melbourne or in that Melbourne market goes down and visits it uh, as it is open from Friday morning. Nice. Well, I hope the weather's better than up here. <laughs> and then uh, finally tomorrow or Thursday, the day that this comes out, we'll see the second of the upfronts for the major networks. It's Paramount ANZ, which owns Channel 10 at the ICC in Sydney. A very different upfront, it seems, to Nines a few weeks back. Last year it was very Viacom, CBS heavy, and now as they have gone all in on the rebrand to Paramount, um, it will be interesting to see how they do position that this year. Um, and also, I guess, interesting to see based on Nines positioning a few weeks ago, very much being Australia's media company, how 10 does position itself now. Yeah, do, do you think, Cal, that we might get to a point somewhere where maybe it phases out the traditional 10 brand? Uh, probably too early to say. It'll be, I, I think it'll be very telling how much we do see that split between um, Paramount and, you know, it's, it's been said that now um, 10's efforts very much go towards promoting that global brand, but I think 10 will definitely tell you that it's still very much that local brand mm. with that local heritage. So I think tomorrow will be very telling to see, um, I guess, how much they continue to play on that. Yeah, and also, I guess, next week too, we've got the Mamma Mia and then the Amazon Prime upfronts the, the following week. So Yeah, so it's definitely heating up now and then seven um, kind of capping off the end of the month and we're seeing the outfronts from <laughs> U Media as well. Um, so, yeah, lots to look forward to there. And in our Umbrella Cast Upfront series, we will have Rod Prosser jumping on on uh, Tuesday's podcast. So um, find that in your feed as per usual. 
coming up next, uh, you'll have my chat with Cummins and Partners' new global CEO, Michael McConville. Michael McConville, global CEO of Cummins and Partners, recently returned from the UK where you were most recently managing partner at Adam and Eve. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Callum. Good to see you. So you're in, I think, still your first month in the role, if, I, if I'm correct there. Yeah, um, you said when you were announced a couple of months ago that you were, you'd been open to coming home for a little while, but it had to be for the right thing. What, what was it about this role that was the right thing and I guess the timing around that as well? Yeah, good question. Um, honestly, it was, it's chemistry as much as anything else from the first instance. I think it's quite easy to kind of like be open to or have a hope or otherwise, but in all honesty, um, the last year in the UK, once the world had opened up a little bit more, etc., it was pretty good. You know, on the work front, it was good. Everything there just chimed. Um, we got to the turn of the year and, you know, we had a couple of things personally that had landed and even they'd resolved themselves and, themselves and they were quite good. Um, this call came out of the blue and it was just interesting. Um, not a cheap word, interesting, <laughs> but interesting. Um, and then it saw the size and the scale of the, the requirement and really what Sean and the team were looking to achieve. and. Um, and then the chemistry was the thing that struck. Sean was really self-aware. He was really emotionally engaged in the business. And what mattered to him was more the work, was more the partnership, was more the clients that he was working with or wanted to work with. And that was striking to me because his measure of success aligned with mine. My yeah. measure of success was I do great work with great people, so more great people will want to do more great work with us. And all the benefits of that follow. You know, but it starts with the work. And if we can do good work, we'll help clients grow in size. And then the follow-on to that is that we'll grow in size. But he was totally on the same page in relation to all of that. So that was the thing that really landed. I think I turned around to my wife after that first conversation with Sean and said, immediately said, this, this is real. Like this, yeah. this, this could be something we really look at. Um, and then it happened fast. Um, because we were just aligned on values, aligned on what good looked like and had some big ambitions. So, yeah, here I am. I want to get into values a bit later because it's something that you have spoken about. But um, I guess in terms of choosing the right agency to come back, it's a big move. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit more about what, I guess, interested you about the proposition of Cummins and Partners because it has sort of aligned itself and made it its sort of uh, proposition clear over the last 10 years or so? Yeah, I mean, I was still in Melbourne when the agency kicked off and I instantly liked the, the proposition that was taken to market. So I remember that quite well. And I always kind of admired that proposition, at least from afar. Um, maybe part of why I did is because for the last, say, decade, I've run multi-agency multi groups, so in, in a more formal way. So. I oversaw you know, groups of agency and I was kind of agencies and was kind of a figurehead lead on those sorts of things. So like the WCRS or the Engine Group in the UK, which is now rebranded to something else. Um, you know, you were client managing director. You, you were managing units that could use anyone from PR, sports sponsorship, social, creative, uh, business transformation, whatever the right connection or cluster of those skill sets you needed, you utilised. Um, and because I liked that and had a natural inclination to work that way, this proposition always appealed to me. So I think that was the first thing and the main thing that I, it seemed to be the type of model that I thought was relevant. 
I know the rest of the, there's a lot of the marketplace that is now kind of offering the same sort of model or an enhanced version of the model. Um, so to come in here with Sean and kind of re-articulate what we could do, but also kind of build afresh with, yeah. with extra capabilities and, and, and take those to clients and an offering, that was really appealing. Was there any sense of you know the fact that you were going to an independent after so many years in these big groups? No, not at all. Uh, and that's probably something that's been in me since day dot. I mean, my first foray to agencies was a was a startup, like right at the beginning. And I think there are all too many kind of young males, more often than not, yep. that <laughs> think to themselves in those early stages of their career, "Oh gosh, I could do this. I could do this really well," but. I knew that maybe I could do that well, but I had to get really good at my work first. I had to learn a lot and I had to learn from the best people. So I always wanted to take that mentality that I had at the beginning, collect my experiences, you know, kind of earn my stripes and get confidence. It takes time to get that confidence, I think. And then to harness it and put it into something that I could shape, something that I could do something proper with. Um, and I love being able to do that in an independent group. You know, you've, you've, you do feel delimited. Um, you don't feel like you can only go so far. So that's really, really nice. And it means that we're walking in here and it's really up to us. Um, and it's really up to our clients. You know, yeah. like how do we service them? What are their needs? Can we service them? And you know, once we've got aligned kind of ambitions with our clients, then we just go, just, just move at pace, move at speed, and give them everything that they want and need. I think, um there's been a lot of anticipation in market for people to have sort of been waiting to see what the next strategic move has been for Cummins and Partners. We saw um, Sean Cummins' name on the door just before, and he said that it's an exciting time because it is, like for many agencies, a time of sort of rebuilding. Mm. Um, a lot of executives would come into a role and they're sort of offered the opportunity to soak it all in, learn it all. You're doing that, but at the same time, kind of building something fresh. What, what do you sort of see as that new strategic move that you're, uh, you've, I guess, been brought in to deliver and also help shape? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a cracking question. And there's still more work to do, but I think I can see green shoots, or we can see green, green shoots really quickly. I think the positioning has to reflect where we've been, but also take on board actually the things we've already got in the business that are enhancements to where we've been. I think our proposition has so readily been about creative and media, um, but that was of the time and of the moment many years ago. I think for where we are now, it's about utilising CX, it's about utilising data, innovation, it's about tying all of those things together and driving growth opportunities for our clients. I think we've got the skills, the capabilities and the materials in here to talk to clients about growth, um, driven through creative means, and I think everything that we do is creative. It's not just yeah. the creative department. Um, and I look at the way in which we use our media and our planning through there to stimulate creative thoughts that can drive growth. And I look at the way in which I've been pleasantly surprised that we can actually commit to clients to the levels of growth that we can deliver. We've got the models, we've got the materials, we've got the facts at our disposal to say, if we invest X, you can gain Y. And I think we want to be that committed to what we offer clients. We do all of that together and I think what we've got are some brilliant stories in the making and I think that's the most important thing. We're not a we won't be a storytelling agency, I think we'll be a story making agency. We'll make the types of stories that clients want to generate, we'll project forward and look at where they want to be in 12 months time or at the end of a project and we will put a line in the sand to say this is what your ambitions 
um, are, we align with those ambitions and this is how we'll go about delivering that story. And at that point, you can look at all the mechanics and all the elements that would be in a brand story, all the customer touch points, and attend to them all. And for those that we can't attend to, we'll be honest with ourselves and honest with the client and we'll work with the right partners. Because yeah. it's in our name, like it's about partnership and recognizing that those partners form many different elements. Um, but, you know, no one has to be acquisitive in those senses. We need to collaborate properly. And that care and collaboration will be kind of, I think, the way in which we move. You know, that'll be the measure for us internally. Are we showing the utmost of care in every tiny thing we do? And are we collaborating in a way that's gonna maximize effectiveness? So there's a few themes emerging at the moment yeah. and we kind of look forward to kind of taking the proposition to market. But I think there's a lot of good that I can already see in here and there's a lot that we can build towards. In well, when you were, when you were announced, I think um, Sean used the words. He said that you're building the agency to, to kind of be in that sweet spot between agency and consultancy. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I can. I mean, I think in this market, I've seen probably more than others. There's such a constant conversation between consultancies and agencies, or you know, talking about kind of brand versus performance, um, culture versus collateral, as, as one of my old kind of colleagues used to say very famously in the UK. Um, I think it's really easy to kind of get stuck in those silos, and I, I think that's wrong. I think that the nature of consulting is that you kind of work hard to get to the root cause or the root problem that you're looking to solve. And it sounds corny and lots of people use this language around creative problem solving, but I think that's really the heart of it. We use creativity to solve problems, but diagnosing the problem and therefore the opportunity for growth is, the, is I guess, the main thing that consultancies are looking to, to support uh, their customers or their clients with. I think our job will be to connect the two together and use creative as a means to solve problems but sometimes that's just smart business solutions versus smart creative solutions in the traditional sense. But I think we've actually got the capabilities to do quite a bit of that already. Yep. I think we'll grow and we'll enhance over time and we'll further foster the team with kind of additional um, supports and uh, I guess discipline specialties. But for now, I'm already seeing kind of a lot of that existing in here. We just need to put the right kind of people together or force kind of collaboration and kind of those connections yep. um, as time goes on. And then we've probably got a number of ways in which we can talk to a lot of different types of clients. In terms of all those people coming together, you know, yourself recently and then your um, CSO, Jeff Malone, and Sophie Lander, the new Sydney MD, all relatively new. What's the sort of, um, I guess, approach to get everyone aligned and firing in that, in that sense? It's been pretty fun so far. Um, it's nice in that you come from the other side of the world and you hope that everyone's nice and good. Fortunately, everyone's really nice. Fortunately, they're good too. Um, then it's just building that collaboration, which I keep on going back to. We're not a business at the moment driven by days in the office during the week, although I'm happy to say that most people are coming in because they're liking it. Um, we're getting people around the room together and I think we're engineering the business more around kind of what are collaborative moments that we come together and what are those where people can kind of you know, pursue the individual needs that they have around workflow. You know, if they've got a deck to build or if they've got um, finance to work through, by all means, like those things can be more useful to be done face to face. But when there are moments of where creativity can strike and the best of it is gonna come from those crossover moments between different disciplines and different senior leadership, let's make those as rich as possible by coming together in those moments. And that's sort of the way we're engineering people's time 
and it means we're seeing a lot of each other. Yeah, um, it's a good thing. Yeah, it's a really good thing. Well, because I'm fresh as well. Yeah, and so, as you said, so is so so is Jeff. Um, but they're a great crew, and we sort of know each other quite well already. And and you're pressing each other not just on the cr- creative problems for clients. You're doing on the strategic um, tasks for clients. We're also doing it amongst ourselves. You know, what do we stand for? What matters to us? And how do we want to drive the business forward? Um, you know, I think. The business is stable, it's steady, it's healthy, everything about it is, is being well built over 11 years, but I'm not here to look for the next year or two or the short-term wins, I'm here to kind of look long-term. It's a rare business opportunity in that respect, where you can look long-term and set a fairly distant course to say, this is what good's going to look like next year, but here's what good's going to look like in 11 years' time yeah. as well. And um, this, this business or this, this industry can sometimes be a little short-termist, it, it wishes it wasn't, and we all talk about long-lasting platform ideas and everything go along with it, but, but people's tenure in certain places isn't always that long. Yeah. So we have to be conscious of that. How do we service the medium term, but how do we also drive something for the longer term? And that's part of kind of really enthused me in coming yeah. back here. Are there any, um, before we just uh, kind of continue on the end part that you were touching on, there any outstanding senior roles that you're still looking to fill? Potentially, there are a couple that we could go into market and look yeah. at. Um, I think it would be you know, unsurprising to say that you know, like Sean's built a great business over a long period of time, but he's not going anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I don't want him to. You know, I just think where we've formed a good partnership very quickly from that first conversation onwards is just doing things with real intention. What are the right things for each of us to work towards? Um, and where are there some gaps and spaces? We've been doing that analysis to say where might there be gaps or where could we enhance? And I think there will be a couple of you know, announcements sometime soon. Um, and we'll just continue to kind of evolve the business as we go. But we've had a couple of client wins over the last little while and that will sort of help support those, those areas of growth and potential senior highs. Um, but yeah, we're working on that and it won't <laughs> take too long to announce more. Um, you, you, you sort of mentioned that the fact that, um, you know, Sean is very well established, his name is on the door. Um, the agency is quite closely tied to his name. How, how do you of sort of manage that as a CEO coming in? And I guess, have you been told with your mandate that, you know, that's not going to be something you have to worry about? Uh, so it's less of, less of a mandate. Uh, I yeah. think if it helps kind of give any real clarity, but this is, this is the truth, you know, Sean's walking me into meetings and, and jokingly in inverted commas calling me his boss um, you know in his mind it's it's handing over the keys and making sure that we're set up for the future um, using him as a brilliant resource within the building so it's not having someone whose name is on the door directed at absolutely everything in the business um, it's about using him with intention casting every task with intention and also just surfacing those people that are unheralded stars within the business as well um, I think this business has built brilliantly over time, and that wasn't all Sean. Yeah. Um, there were some great people that came before us. There's a lot of people that are here for a really long time, which also says a lot about this place. Um, that's not altogether normal in, in a lot of parts of the industry, but it was here, and I really respect what's come before. Now it's just a matter of us taking stock of where we are, how the industry has changed, how clients' needs have changed, and making sure that we don't just keep pace with that, but we set the pace on that, yeah. I think. You know, we'll, we'll, be, we'll, we'll be ambitious and we'll make sure that we're setting ourselves up, not just to kind of just do the norm and be kind of an other agency over the course of the next decade, but this is former agency of the year yeah. um, on repeat performance. Um, that's where we've been. That's where we need to be aiming. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you look around the industry now and, you know, the senior roles of countless agencies are, you know, filled with former alumni of this this agency. And it's, it's very well known for nurturing and growing talent. Yeah. Um, you mentioned their agency of the year just as recently as 2019. I think they're Umbrella's media and yeah. full service agency of the year. Um, how do you sort of, I guess, get back to those highs? Is that is that an aim? I, I know you spoke about it's not short termism. No, no, it's absolutely the aim. Yeah. It has to be. Yeah. Um, I'd like to see an industry, and I want to be part of this industry, that doesn't really, that doesn't lack confidence in saying what we wish for and what we're aiming for. I think all too often people within this business, um, be that as industry, like agency industry, or kind of, you know, that kind of marketing industry as well, because there's maybe a lack of confidence in really achieving the goals that might be set out publicly, they never get stated. Yeah. And then people don't know what great looks like. They don't really go aiming for it. So I'm not too shy in saying that we should be aiming high within this, uh, within this business. And I'm not too shy in saying that internally. I know what everyone's goals are. And 2019 is not so far away or not so far behind us that it shouldn't be somewhere we feel like we can, we can get to fairly swiftly. Um, as Sean has told you, and as I've said, it is kind of a, it's an 11 year old startup type mentality. It is a bit of a kind of reset, rebuild and reinvent, but that all feels very well within our means. And that notion of kind of reinventing who we are for, for a more modern need of, of modern marketer is the thing that will allow us to kind of uncover those brilliant creative opportunities through whatever field we approach the marketing with and, and make a difference for clients. And um, you, you've spoken about an agent building an agency that lives on very strong values yeah. um, is important to you, and that needs to be there in order for people to deliver their best creative product or any kind of product. Of course. Um, what What are some of those values that you're you're looking to establish? Yeah, so I think the utmost care for each other, uh, the clients, and the work. I think. Care sounds like a soft uh, care sounds like a soft word, but it's not. It's yeah. actually a very specific term, and um, it just means going the extra mile on each of those things that we speak to. Um, it could be, you know, in some instances, it's it's the care for the craft. It's about kind of making sure that the work continually and iteratively improves all the way to the last. Um, it could be that it means we stop, pause, and ask difficult questions of each other um, to just check that everyone's okay and to make sure that kind of everyone's well placed to do their best work it also means taking care from my perspective to create the best internal environment for people to do their best work making it okay for people to be wrong i'm wrong all the time (laughs) most of the time Um, but making sure people feel like it's okay to be wrong i know the industry and kind of broader industry talks about failing and failing fast and that's all okay too but i think that starts with much smaller things it's okay to be wrong in the room as long as it's a step towards getting it right yeah um so i think there there are a few of them i mean i'm very passionate about kind of supporting the 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 mental health and well-being of staff but i'm equally passionate about doing that for clients i've had clients before where you know i've i've reached out to kind of senior clients to kind of ensure that people felt supported and looked after on, on the personal as well as the work and i think there's a lot of good in this industry and a lot of goodwill I just think sometimes we need the right structures and care around what we do. Um, and then values are around collaboration, like proper partnership. It's one thing that's in our name, but I really believe it. Um, I like flat structures. I like working with clients where it's sometimes slightly unclear, like exactly who's responsible for what. And making, you know, making our clients and our partners 
properly part of a creative process or properly part of a media process or otherwise. Um, that's just doing it as one system and one group and we'll, we'll be look, we can and will build processes around that to better tie people together because I think I've got two, two kind of comments that I like from kind of like on repeat from clients over the years. One is they feel like naturally we're an extension of their marketing team. I think everyone's sort of heard that yeah. before but I think when they take it a step further and say I just feel like we're one team and I can't really see where the edges are that's what I want in terms of a systems approach. Um, and then the second is, and this is what I want for everyone in this building, I, I like it when clients say, I feel like you go to war for us. Not with us, but for <laughs> us. And that's about aligning on ambitions, showing the utmost care, and knowing that we're all fighting for a common goal. That's not too hard to achieve. You just have the right conversations to set it, set it up from the outset, know where you stand, and then everyone, go. Just one mode, go. Go, go hard. Um, so... On your personal note, you've just returned from nine years uh, in the UK. Um, this a this this agency, this industry is traditionally very well staffed from people coming in from the UK. Yeah. Um, we haven't really seen that as much since the borders have reopened. Maybe as much as people might have predicted. Uh, largely, the incoming talent has been returning expats like yourself. We have the new Clemenger. Uh, Australia, Clemenger BBD Australia boss, I should say. Yeah. Um, Danny Bassel returning. What's the sort of view in the UK anecdotally on the market here? Is it still sort of seen as an, a realistic or aspirational move to make? I think so. Like personally, sort of on the personal side of how people might say it, yes, it's desirable. It doesn't feel as achievable at the moment, but I think that will start to turn and probably faster than we realise. Um, professionally, I think it's still seen as a great place to go. It'll depend on the role and the agency and the level of kind of experience, but I still think Australia and New Zealand for that matter are seen quite positively. They, they do tend to punch above, we do tend to punch above our weights when it comes to award shows and things like that, which is always internationally kind of the barometer of sorts. Um, but I think Australia and New Zealand, for that matter, I keep saying that. My wife's a Kiwi, so she'll want to make sure I keep saying that. <laughs> they're, they're great breeding, brand, breeding grounds for talent. They really are. Like, you've got to be really disciplined in this marketplace. And you know, budgets aren't always as high as the UK or the US. So you've really got to earn the right to do work. Um, and that means you know, your client partnerships have to be so positive and they need to be kind of as rich as they can be. But you've just got to you've got to land the work, and you've got to land the strategy, and you've got to remove any barriers. So it's just unequivocally right. Which means, for me in the UK, I had a different experience in the last couple of years in that there weren't many Australians and Kiwis coming over. Yeah. Um, and we recognised over time that the number of people from Australia and New Zealand, particularly when it came to account handling or creative, they might make up anywhere between fifteen and twenty five percent of the the people we might hire or the resumes coming through. So it's been really interesting over there because we felt it exactly the same, just on the other side. Um, people weren't traveling, people yeah. weren't coming, and there were huge shortages all over the place. So I think the, any form of talent shortage is, is pretty real. Um, I think that's coming from kind of a lack of movement, you know, kind of a lack of immigration, and, and all of those sorts of things. COVID obviously put a massive pressure on all of that. But when things turn, they tend to turn quick, quicker than, than most of us realize. And I think we'll start seeing a bit of an influx sometime pretty soon. Um, and for the expats and for us, you know, this is an interesting couple of years, really, where there was something, something different um, in the way you approached things or the way you thought about things. 
felt very different when you had to be there versus choosing to be there. And it just does get you to kind of take stock and say, if anything else goes down again in the future, where do I want to be? And I think for a lot of us, we want to be around family. Yeah. Um, we want to be in a place that we know and trust and we can be surrounded by a support um, mechanism. And then if you make that decision to come back, um, or if you're open to it, in my sense, you've got to make sure you just come back for the right thing. Um, if you come back just for, for anything, then you'll just be disappointed. You'll end up longing for the thing that you left and you'll end up missing that and you won't get full value out of it. So you've got to move for the right thing. And then I guess you, you've come back to a, a very Australian setting. You live down the, the surf coast. Yeah. Um, th- there's a lot of traveling involved in that. How, how do you, do, do, does that excite you? Gives you time to you know make some calls, listen to this podcast. How, how do you juggle that? So I have been listening to this podcast, thank you. <laughs> um, it's great. It's really great. I mean, it's it'll be different for everyone, and some might find it absolutely ridiculous. But for me, it's it's given me kind of headspace. It gives me kind of time to digest. Um, any anybody that's kind of thinking creatively, and yes, I will position myself as someone that thinks creatively. Um, that time where you're not actively thinking or actively engaged in a conversation, we all know those are the moments that you you enable yourself to just consider something different and you just take stock and percolate and end up in a slightly different place than you might have been if you will just go, go, go the whole time. That said, I'm still pretty go, go, go. Um, I, you know, I'm in Sydney quite regularly, as I have been the last few weeks. So I, I do stay up in St Kilda a bit. But for me, those, those drives or sometimes those train rides, they're great time for individual working pursuits and they're good thinking time. Um, it's worked for me and it's not too different to my life in the UK. Yeah. Um, where from southeast London to north, West London, where as it was for me, was an hour and ten minutes each way each day. Anyway, um, I was I was working with teams in Hamburg, Barcelona, um, Berlin. Um, those are pretty hefty commutes. So this is this is a dream. But um, I don't think I'm altogether different to a lot of the moves people have been making um, here over the last few years. I think the pandemic did that for a lot of people, where they decided to kind of you know take a bit of a sea change or be yeah. elsewhere. Um, but I'm very, very present in here. So I don't allow anyone to kind of attend to my diary or change things based on <laughs> their concern about my Your travel my time. Yeah. That's, that, that's for me. It's not for anyone else to worry about. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, your, your, your title does have global CEO in it. There is it a New York um, office involved. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening over there at the moment? Um, Clients-wise, what, what's yeah. what's the uh, state of Cummins and Partners New York? So it's really it's really solid and stable. It's not it's not the biggest um, office, but it's it's a pretty healthy size and a really stable one. It's a, it's it's lovely actually coming into something like this because it's got such an opportunity to scale. Um, good clients we find ourselves on on certain types of pitch lists, and we've got a really really good way of working there that you can sense within 10 minutes of being in the building where it's just flat structures everyone's got their you know discipline specialty but everyone just mucks in to get the job done and i love that and, and in all honesty like no matter the size of adam and eve um, my last agency no matter how big we got it was still the same you build gangs you build teams and you do it all together so it's great as far as i'm concerned um, there's a couple of big pitches like properly big pitches on the horizon and we'll look to make the most of those yeah. um, because I think we can operate as a micro network and service the right time, the right type of discipline specialty or the right type of person for the brief, depending on where it is. 
And I think, yeah, New York's, uh, it makes it, it's, you'll see me smiling as I talk about it because I can just see the growth that can come from it. Um, but also the skills that are there that we can utilize um, in this part of the world too. Because when it comes to social and content and kind of you know, ongoing reactive work, they're, they're phenomenal at it. Um, in Cummins and Partners New York, we can harness a bit more of that here regards to the skill set we've got um, when it comes to kind of you know big pictures on the horizon and pieces of work that could scale up in size and across markets we've got good capability here that we connect there so it's good we've had people kind of go from office to office um, enjoy a range of kind of experiences we've had someone over there very recently one of our creatives was over just a few months ago and it's not a it's not a bad way to to experience being part of a micro network and yeah. that's how we need to move I think over time you know really embrace that micro network type approach um, there are some pretty darn good ones in the world um, it's not always about being kind of a multinational I think that the notion of a micro network can suit us quite nicely and I, I was going to ask you at some point um, you know you've worked with this really exciting uh, group of uh, clients in, in the UK Adam and Eve I, rather than ask you you know, that any sectors you're really wanting to work with at Cummins and Partners, I'll ask you if there was one of those clients, you know, you worked with John Lewis, which is you know, famous for its Christmas ads, Volkswagen, uh, the Football League. If there was one client you could bring over with you and kind of slide them into the, the Cummins and Partners uh, list, what, what one would that be? Uh, funnily enough, and it might sound, not sound as glamorous, it would have been pretty easy to say John Lewis. Um, and I do also wish that I could do that. Yeah. Um, I have to take any of those clients because the, the reason they all work is because of, of shared ambition. Like yeah. you're, you're re- they were really clear on what they wanted to achieve and so were we. And it blurred the lines between you know, traditional clients and agency. Um, that's remarkable. And that's when great things really happen. You look at the history of John Lewis with Craig Inglis, who was the marketing lead there. He was so passionate about creativity and was so creatively fluent and when you look at the likes of you know Ben Priest, David Golding, and James Murphy working with him, it just it just hummed because they're on the same page and they're all pressing each other. But the client I'd bring on would be the Royal Navy Marines oh, over wow. there. Yeah, um, they're a remarkable organisation and they really cared about people and people development. And they invited us in. They treat you like one of their own and. They have the utmost respect for you, just in the same way you have the utmost respect for them. And you all knew that you that you each knew your stuff to the most significant degree of that person in the room. And there was just no way you guys know nothing. It was brilliant. And we came up with one of those great, long-lasting sort of platform ideas, which was made in the Royal Navy at the time, which is really just a simple way of saying it's, you know, it's the making of a person. So I might have been born in Carlisle, but I was made in the Royal Navy. And it's a way of, you know, someone who's been in the, the service for a while looking back and saying, oh, far out, I can see that this made me as a person. And that's also really attractive to candidates, which is all the work was really about. It's attracting kind of the right type yeah. of personnel. Um, it's a great way of crossing that dividing line between prospects and a lived experience. So I love them. I love the, I still love the way they kind of like looked after us, treated us and otherwise. And I love the way they went after a, a, a long-term thought that they embraced wholeheartedly, but it still works in the short term as well. And, and that's, that's success to me. That was really, really effective work, really good people. Love it. Michael, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And that is it for another week on the Mumbrella Cast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a review if you want to, if you have any feedback you'd like to pass through to us. 
Again, we'll have that special edition Mumbrella Cast Upfronts podcast with Rod Prosser on Tuesday. Uh, otherwise, for today, thanks again to Michael for joining us and Banksy, thanks to you. Thank you again, Cal. See you next week. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.